Thanks to you at home for joining us. I'm going to read some reviews of President Biden's State of the Union last night, and I want you to try and guess the source. Quote, look, he worked hard tonight. He put into words what he felt, and he ended the evening far stronger than he began. Give him credit for that. Here's another. Quote, his wife Jill is looking lovely tonight in a beautiful purple dress. Now, if you don't know who said this, don't worry about it. The answer is really very unlikely. Those were both reviews from former President Donald Trump. And as much as Trump also ranted about Biden's speech, even he had to admit that last night was a strong night for President Biden. Not only did Biden lay out a vision for how Democrats want to change the country, but he managed to sort of trick Republicans into agreeing with him. There were a few of those moments, but the most notable one was this. Instead of making the wealthy pay their fair share, some Republicans, some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. <laughs> Let me give you anybody who doubts it. Contact my office. I'll give you a copy. I'll give you a copy of the proposal. That means Congress doesn't vote. Well, As we all apparently agree. Social Security and Medicare is off the, off the books now, right? They're not to be sponsored. All right. We good? Now, last night, President Biden was very diplomatically not naming names when it came to which Republicans have been pushing to sunset Medicare and Social Security. But there are two senators who have been incredibly loud and proud about doing just that. Florida Senator Rick Scott and Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson. And they are not just two random senators. Senator Scott was the head of the National Republican Senatorial Committee last year. He challenged Mitch McConnell for Senate leadership literally just months ago, and he didn't do it empty handed. For almost a year now, Senator Scott has been promoting this big multi-point plan to rescue America. He even has a 66 page pamphlet. Is it still a pamphlet with 66 pages? I don't know. Anyway, you can get it for free, the pamphlet, and it explains everything. I have it right here the 66-page pamphlet. On page 36, quite literally, it says, all federal legislation sunsets in five years. If a law is worth keeping, Congress can pass it again. That's literally something sunsetting. It could rise again like the sun, but it, it is sunsetting there. Okay, now think about the incredibly unnecessary and potentially economy-collapsing standoff we may have this year over the debt limit in Congress. And then imagine if we had a scenario like that every five years for everything the government does. Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. Can you imagine if Republicans could hold hostage medical care for seniors? Because that has been the sales pitch for the past year from one of the country's top Republicans. Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson, he goes even further. Here he is on a local radio show just last year when he was in the middle of a tough re-election fight. Defense spending has always been discretionary. No VA spending is discretionary. What's mandatory are things like Social Security and Medicare. If you qualify for the entitlement, you just get it no matter what the cost. What we ought to be doing is we ought to turn everything into discretionary spending so it's all evaluated. Wisconsin Senator Johnson doesn't just want Social Security and Medicare to need reapproval every five years. He wants it to be discretionary funding that has to be approved every single year, which is wow. 
Now, both Senator Ron Johnson and Senator Rick Scott have since put out statements saying Biden's comments on Social Security and Medicare last night were spin and they were lies. And that puts Senators Johnson and Scott in a sort of catch-22. They don't want to call attention to something they campaigned on and that other Republicans have suggested might be on the table in future debt ceiling negotiations. And that, that place, is exactly where President Biden seems to want them. Let me ask you first about last night, the State of the Union. You are getting a lot of attaboys today from your fellow Democrats who are saying you showed energy, optimism, you stood up to the Republicans. They were yelling at you. Some of them were calling you a liar. Did you expect that kind of reaction? From the folks who did it, I was. The vast majority of Republicans weren't that way. I also noticed a fair amount of Republicans standing up last night and clapping. You know, for example, when I pointed out that um, some Republicans were talking about eliminating Medicare, they said, no, no, no. I said, oh, okay. That means all of you are for supporting Medicare. Everybody raise your hand. They all raise their hand. So guess what? We accomplished something. If they, unless they break their word, there's going to be no cuts in Medicare or Social Security. So, yeah, thanks. Thanks, Ron Johnson and Rick Scott and all you Republicans who stood up clapping for Social Security and Medicare. We accomplished something. Yes, let's go. And just in case there was still any doubt about how much and how hard President Biden is going to press this point, he showed up in Wisconsin today, Senator Johnson's backyard, with a copy of Senator Scott's 66-page pamphlet and printouts of Senator Johnson's statements about sunsetting government benefits. Well, okay now, President Biden. It does not stop there. Tomorrow, Biden heads to Florida, which is Senator Scott's backyard. Now, to be clear, both of these trips were announced before the State of the Union, but it all feels almost like a strategy. And the burden is now on Republicans. They can either admit they support their own wildly unpopular policies or they can abandon them, which is really kind of an A-plus political maneuver from the Democrat in this picture. It's not all about spectacularly trolling Republicans ahead of any hostage-taking on the debt limit, though. President Biden is taking his national show on the road to demonstrate in individual states what Democrats can do. In Wisconsin today, Biden touted the $2.9 billion of federal funding from his infrastructure bills that will fund projects across Wisconsin. This is granular stuff that shows people actual change in their everyday lives, like funding to replace all the diesel buses in Racine, Wisconsin, with electric buses and replacing the I-39 Wisconsin River Bridge. And there are now tons of soon-to-be shovel-ready projects for President Biden to brag about in every state he visits. It's sort of a national PR blitz highlighting what Democrats are doing and can do and maybe will do for Americans across the country. And no one is in a better position to help us evaluate how Biden's pitch is landing than the newly elected Democratic governor of Maryland, Wes Moore. Governor Moore is, the only, is only the third black governor in U.S. history. He is now at the helm of a new state-level Democratic trifecta, which means Democrats in control of the State House, State Senate, and the Governor's Mansion. And Maryland, really, at this moment, with this man in charge, has the opportunity to be a Democratic laboratory. And also, he was at the State of the Union last night. That, too. Joining me now is my friend, Maryland's Democratic Governor, Wes Moore. I can't, it's like the first time I've addressed you as governor, and I'm tearing up a little bit, Wes Moore. It's so good to see you. Congratulations on your win. 
Thank you. Congratulations to you. Congratulations uh, to you. We did good. Our moms are proud. Um, Wes, Governor Moore. There they um, are. Yes, they are. <laughs> let's talk a little bit about what happened last night. I mean, I think there was a, a lot of surprise. Yeah. Um, it remains unclear how much Biden expected to be heckled, but he turned it into a real moment. How long do you think he can play this strategy? Do you think it's work? Do you think it's going to work? Do you think Republicans are now in a bind of their own making? Well, I, I think this strategy is going to work because his strategy is just share facts. There's nothing else to it. You know, when when he talks about the reason that the investment matters and what it means to individual local communities, I can tell you right now that it matters to the state of Maryland, where the president was just here last week. And, and together in partnership, we announced a uh, new construction to the Frederick Douglass Tunnel, which is going to create 30,000 new jobs in the state of Maryland. You know, just just the past week, uh, we were announcing a, a joint partnership that took place with Coppin University, Coppin State University, one of our four HBCUs in the state of Maryland that is focusing on broadband equity, a five million dollar investment from the federal government. So the, the investments that are taking place around the country, I can tell you from firsthand experience as the chief executive of the state of Maryland, they are working. It is helping people to get to work. And that's the reason that we are so excited in partnership to be able to be working with this administration. You know, it's like so often these big political speeches are, are couched in vagaries. I mean, big soaring ideas. But what was so interesting about what Biden ha did last night and what he's doing today and what you're talking about is the specificity of these projects, whether it's the junk credit card fees he was right. talking about or the bridges or just appearing in places where diesel buses are going to be replaced by electric buses. I mean, I feel like this is a new model for politicians, which is bring the change home. And even if it may seem negligible, that matters to people on the ground, right? Like seeing federal, the federal government at work improving communities actually bears goodwill. Is that the experience you've had? I mean, admittedly, in a short time in office, but just hearing from your constituents, how much does it matter for them to literally see the change on their roads, in their, on their corners? That's exactly right, because that's what they elect us for, right? They, they elect us to actually do the work on the ground that is going to have a direct impact on their lives. You know, I, I remember when in the, in the first day that I that I took office, a way I signed executive orders that did everything from releasing three point five million dollars in, in funding for previously withheld funding for abortion providers and training for abortion providers. Because when I said that Maryland is going to be a safe haven for abortion rights, I meant it the day after. I signed an executive order creating a platform where Maryland it will be the first state in this country to offer a service year option for every single high school graduate. That we want all high school graduates to have a chance to have a year of service to the state of Maryland. And it's both going to be working with nonprofit organizations and organizations that are on the ground doing the work, but also helping to address the fact that right now in the state of Maryland, we have 10,000 vacancies in our state government, which means basic functions are not being performed. And so I think what we saw from the president and what we're seeing from chief executives all around the country is the practical on the ground work that people are requiring and people are demanding. It is happening, but it means we have to be intentional. It means we have to be aggressive and it means we have to stay focused on creating these pathways for work, wages and wealth for all families within our jurisdictions. You know, governor, I'm still getting used to it. Um, 
It's not just, it seems to me, right? Like Biden laid out a case that the functioning of government isn't just important because, of course, people want services to work. They want, you know, roads that don't have potholes. They want a functioning uh, representative government. But it's also this, this intangible of pride. When people see their communities falling yes. apart, when they when the, we can't ride, go down the roads, when there's too much, you know, they have to wait in line at the DMV for a million hours— it, 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 there's a loss. I mean, I'm, those are sort of the most minimal surface aspects of a loss of pride in America. But he, he talked so much about pride last night. He invoked it, I think, five times in the course of the speech. And it seemed to me that he thinks that's central to stitching the country back together, to the lost part yes. of the Republican Party that is so filled with grievance. It seems like an olive branch. And you rebuild this country, this democracy, by making people believe in it, not just because functionality is good, and efficiency is good because they then believe in the project of America writ large. And that, do you, do you agree that pride, the, the restoration of pride as articulated by the president last night is central to sort of bringing back bipartisanship? I don't want to sound like Pollyanna, but I sort of wonder how you read the invocation of pride last night. I do. And, and I think he did a great job of showing that pride isn't partisan, right? Pride is patriotic. Pride is just simply about the fact that we have a fundamental commitment to be able to leave our jurisdictions a little bit better than the way that we found them. You know, I, I, I know that when we went through our campaign, we ended up winning with more individual votes than anyone who had ever run for governor in the history of the state of Maryland. And the reason why that was important is this, is we went everywhere and we didn't just win Democrats. We won Democrats, independents, and a good chunk of Republicans because you realize that the things that we were talking about, making sure that we can fully fund a strong public education system, making sure that we can have safe streets and safe communities for everybody and people have a right to feel safe in their own neighborhoods, in their own communities, and in their own skin, making sure that our communities can be more competitive and as our state, we can grow our small businesses. That's not a partisan issue. And the beautiful thing that we saw last night from the speech is so many of the issues that the president was speaking about, they did not have a partisan tint. It was just simply about the idea and something that I believe in deeply, that if we're divided, that we have no shot of winning. But if we're united, then we can't lose. That's what he highlighted. And that's why I think these policies matter so much, that pride is not partisan. Pride is patriotic. You know, he makes he's gone to Wisconsin. He's going to Florida, which is not exactly a Democratic hotbed, taking it to Republican doorsteps, not to troll Ron DeSantis, but to say, hey, I know you didn't vote for me. I know there's a lot of talk here about how Democrats are being held hostage by a leftist woke mob. But at the end of the day, I'm here to fix things. I'm here to make you believe in the project again. Seems super powerful. Um, how, how do you square? How do you square that person with the Republicans who are heckling the president and painting a picture of, of the apocalypse on the horizon for America. I mean, how do you talk to those people in, in a moment like this when the, you know, the president is trying really hard but is getting screamed at in, in the State of the Union address? I, I think it was exactly the, the, the image that the president wanted. Uh, where the president is talking about the policies that can make people that can make their lives better, that are addressing the very real and the very human pain that so many Americans are feeling, both in urban, rural, and suburban areas. Uh, and then you have uh, have another group 
who is perfectly fine being in the opposition, but are not coming up with a solution. You know, and, and I know that, you know, what we saw uh, in our race was, you know, when we you look at the the impacts of the race that, that, that we had and we won decisively. But even since then, we have spent a good amount of time as the as the governor where I have been out to Western Maryland and to the Eastern Shore and a lot of rural areas, places that have not seen a, a governor visit. I was in one area in Western Maryland, has not seen a governor visit there since 1996. And the thing that I said to people out there, and there weren't a lot of Democrats when we went out there to go to go visit last Monday. And I said, you know, for the people that voted for me, I plan to work to keep your support. And for the people who didn't vote for me, I just ask and I, I pray that you offer the space and the grace for me to earn your support in the future. I, I think that what President Biden is going to show and what he'll continue to show is we have plans real plans and pathways for economic growth for people in our jurisdictions, for people from me and my state, for the president and the country, and uh, and understand that the opposition is not providing an alternative. The opposition is just simply being an opposition, and people will pay attention to that. Maryland's governor, Wes Moore. I love saying Maryland's governor, Wes Moore. You were always destined for it, Wes Moore, since the day I met you. Congratulations. Thank you for coming on the show. Please come back all the time and good luck with everything you're doing in the state. Bless you. Thank you so much. Thank you. We have lots more to come tonight. The fallout after the arrest of a top FBI spy hunter accused of working with the Russian oligarch who played a starring role in the Mueller report. The accusations against him might even get worse. Plus, who's normal and who's crazy? More on that just ahead. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops, on. TVs, streaming. Game console, console Smart thermostat, set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera, oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators. Now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. It's Monday night. It's Monday, everyone. Happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. Sarah Pascoe, it's Matthew Chance from CNN. Um, is it true that Mr. Manafort owed you millions of dollars when he was the when he was the um, uh, head of the Trump campaign? Did Manafort owe you millions of dollars when he was the head of the Trump campaign? Did he owe you millions of dollars? It's the news for idiots, if you don't understand. Did he offer those private briefings to you as a way to try and repay that debt, Mr. Deripaska? Get lost, please. Thank you. At lost, please. Thank you. Ice cold. That epic brush off was courtesy of Oleg Deripaska, a Russian oligarch with very close ties to Vladimir Putin. If his name sounds familiar, that's because it was re- revealed in 2017 that Donald Trump's campaign manager, Paul Manafort, owed Oleg Deripaska millions. 
That would be the same Paul Manafort who was indicted by special counsel Robert Mueller's team on a slew of charges, money laundering, tax fraud and failure to register as a foreign agent for a previous pro-Russian Ukrainian government. Manafort reportedly offered Deripaska private briefings about the 2016 campaign as a way to reportedly get whole with Deripaska. The Russian oligarch is mentioned in Mueller's report over 60 times. Now, investigators on Mueller's team and the Senate Intelligence Committee had strong suspicions but were ultimately never able to confirm that Manafort shared internal Trump campaign polling data with Deripaska via his former business partner, Konstantin Kalimnik, who, as the U.S. government has determined, was a Russian intelligence agent. To underscore just how close Deripaska is to the Kremlin, the 2016 Senate intelligence report on Russian election interference says about him, quote, the Russian government coordinates with and directs Deripaska on many of his influence operations. It is against that backdrop that the FBI announced a stunning and just completely shocking arrest late last month of one of its own, albeit former, most senior officials. Charles McGonigal is the former chief counterintelligence official at the FBI in New York. And the FBI unsealed two unbelievable indictments against him, one of which alleges that shortly after leaving the FBI, McGonagall began taking money from Oleg Deripaska for allegedly trying to get the Russian billionaire off of the U.S. sanctions list, which is just extremely alarming for a number of reasons. We're talking about someone who served as the chief counterintelligence official at the FBI New York field office, who was tasked with investigating Russian election interference in 2016. And we're talking about him allegedly being in cahoots with a sanctioned Russian oligarch who was close to Putin. As Yale historian Timothy Snyder puts it, in 2016, Trump's campaign manager, Paul Manafort, was a former employee of a Russian oligarch named Oleg Deripaska and owed money to that same Russian oligarch. And the FBI special agent, Charles McGonigal, who was charged with investigating the Trump campaign's Russian connections, he then went to work, according to the indictment, for that very same Russian oligarch. This is obviously very bad for Trump personally, but it is also very bad for FBI New York, for the FBI generally, and for the United States of America. At best, this story could just be about plain old greed. At worst, it could potentially be catastrophic for highly sensitive U.S. government secrets. But there is still so very much we do not know. A new insider report published today sums up the stakes this way. The McGonagall case is already a bad look for those charged with protecting U.S. secrets. There is a chance it could get much worse. McGonagall was not charged with espionage, and although there is no current evidence that McGonagall committed espionage, an FBI source told Insider that the investigation is ongoing. Joining us now is former FBI general counsel and a former senior member of special counsel Robert Mueller's team who knows a thing or two about Oleg Deripaska, the great Andrew Weissman. Every time you're on the show is the perfect time for you to be on the show. But I mean, I triple mean it tonight. First of all, espionage. Do you think I mean, they're releasing him on a five hundred thousand dollar bond, which suggests that espionage may not be in the mix here. How do you read the situation as it presently stands? You know, I think that if I were at the FBI, they have to be worried about, is this a corruption case or is this a counterintelligence case and needing to get to the bottom of it? They have to be scouring every single thing that he touched at the FBI um, to figure out what's going on. It's important to know he didn't just leave the FBI and work for Oleg Deripaska, which, as you said, you know, the judgment call there and how you would go from sort of essentially Team America to Team Russia yeah. that quickly. 
Um, the reason he's charged with a criminal case is that, you know, that alone is not enough. It's that he disguised his work in a way that it wouldn't be clear that he was violating U.S. sanctions. So he, there were all sorts of um, ways that they had, you know, fake companies, and they sort of used the money in different ways to say that he got paid, but no one could trace it. Well, the FBI did trace it, and that's the charge in New York. Separately, yeah. he is charged with actually committing crimes of a really dangerous nature while he was at the FBI. Not after he left, but he was taking hundreds of thousands of dollars, according to the indictment, from Albanians. Mm -hmm. And not only took the money, but he opened a, a case on an adversary of the person who was giving him money. So that, you know- from, While he was at the FBI. While he was at the FBI. I mean, this, this, you know, if you're at the FBI where, you know, it's filled with honest, hardworking people, this is the worst thing ever. Yeah. The way, just imagine anybody in a workplace where you find out that somebody you trust did something I mean, someone like high up, too. This isn't just some low-level agent, as you were saying to me before this segment began. Incredibly high up. To be a special agent in charge in New York is one of the preeminent positions. And then to be in the, the, the kind of work he was doing gave him access to everything. So one of the reasons I think that there are two indictments, not one, is it's a little like playing Russian roulette with mm -hmm. two bullets, not one bullet. I mean, this puts a ton of pressure on him to plead guilty and to cooperate. Flip. Exactly. Because if you're at the FBI, you'd absolutely want to know what information did you pass on to Albanians, Russians, anyone. Um, I mean, that is that has got to be the main focus of, you know, Chris Ray, Lisa Monaco, Merrick Garland. As of right now, so just to, to be clear, because we didn't talk a lot about the Albanian indictment in the script there, but that happened when he was at the FBI. Absolutely. From what we know right now, he had left the FBI before before maybe he started working for Deripaska. But are, can we be certain of that, right? Like, you know, from the Manafort case, it takes some time to figure out how long someone's been working covertly for a, a foreign government. Absolutely. You, you do not know from the public record when that relationship started. And if you're Oleg Deripaska or any um, oligarch, you, the idea that you have access and could get information from a high-level FBI agent, that's, you know, manna from heaven. And this is sort of spy versus spy. That is what they're going to want. So that issue of when there was that relationship, when did it start, and then particularly what was said is key. And just to the point, by the way, on the Manafort, the, the polling data, just because you always try your last case, <laughs> after, after our investigation was over, and Biden became president, um, the DNI, uh, the head of the intelligence community, reported that they actually were able to confirm that the polling data went to Russia. I mean, we knew that had to be the case, but yeah. we didn't have the evidence, so we, did, we couldn't say it. But of course, Konstantin Kalimnik would have been killed if he hadn't passed it on. And that person he was supposed to give it to was... Yes. Oh, like Deripaska. Exactly. So, so for people who are kind of like, wait, Deripaska, Klimnik, Manafort, where's Trump in all of this? I mean, one of the things that people are now scrutinizing are these two stories that came out in October of 2016 that had measurable impacts on the election, if you believe the data that surfaced afterwards, right? James Comey announced that there's going to be an investigation into Clinton's email, that they're picking that up, and in part makes this announcement a week before the election because he's worried that the FBI office in New York is going to leak word of it or is going to put forth leaks if Comey doesn't do something about it. People are saying, wait a second, 
FBI New York office. Was Charles McGonigal involved in this leak to The New York Times that subsequently hurt Hillary Clinton and helped Donald Trump. Same with the New York Times stunning front page story in the same time frame that they said the FBI saw no clear links between Trump and Russia. Those two New York Times stories had an, I think, right, and Nate Silver thinks, a measurable impact on the 2016 election. Do you think that, I mean, is the FBI going to be looking at what McGonagall was doing in that time? Because he was at the FBI office at that juncture. Yeah. So, I mean, the idea, if you flip him, you're definitely going to ask those questions. I have to say, if you, I wouldn't hold my breath. Um, And unfortunately, the reason is um, the inspector general looked at this. um, The FBI presumably looked at this and they just haven't gotten anywhere on who at the FBI was leaking to the press. I mean, Everyone was quite aware Mm -hmm. that that was going on. I mean, there was just story after story, and everyone sort of knew this was coming from New York, and that Rudy Giuliani obviously was the mayor here. He was very close friends with all sorts of people connected to the FBI. So it was... Everyone knew there was a lot of smoke, but there's so far. And no predicted been, that a big story was going to oh, come out. Absolutely. But so far, there's been it hasn't been pinned down. Now, could McGonagall, if he flips, give the answer to that? He could if he if he knows that it is just to play devil's advocate. It is possible that this is a really interesting, really important story. But it's unrelated to McGonagall. Um, exactly. Do you think the FBI is can the FBI investigate this sufficiently? This is one of their own. It happened under their noses. Is, are they the right people to be investigating the McGonagall so case? So that is a fantastic question. So on the plus side, look, they made this case. I mean, so as yeah. the FBI said, you know, they assigned it outside of New York. They had Washington and L.A., which are two great offices doing this case, and they brought it. And it's these are two, they look very solid. So that's the plus side. The, the minus side is, you know, I've been critical of Chris Ray in terms of um, just how forthcoming he's been in the way he's talked about, for instance, what happened on January 6th and talking about FBI failures there. And I think there were failures. And I think, you know, I was trained by Robert Mueller. I know Lisa Monaco, the deputy attorney general, was trained by Robert Mueller. When something goes wrong, candor is the only way to go. Um, so the concern I would have is whatever the FBI determines, are they going to be very candid about whatever faults it shows and just say, look, this is what happened and warts and all, and this is what we're doing to fix it. That obviously is the right approach. Um, It remains to be seen whether that's what they're going to do. It is a stunning story. I mean, bags of money in apartments, handoffs of manila file folder envelopes at fancy dinners. It's stuff out of a Jean Le Carré right, book. Including a, this sort of so-called scorned woman who Yes, tilted lovers. Right, this right. story has it all. <laughs> Andrew Weissman, for me, a former FBI general counsel and senior member of the Mueller team. It's always good to see you. Thank you, Andrew, for disabusing me of certain notions <laughs> and piquing my interest in others. It's great to see you. Still more to come tonight, including Republicans who are going all in on the culture wars to fire up their voters. So what can a Democrat do to help and turn down the heat? We have advice about just how to do it, possibly just ahead. Get the latest updates on this year's high stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com slash win. 
There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Time is running out for survivors buried under the rubble caused by a massive earthquake that hit Turkey and Syria on Monday. Just after 11 p.m. Eastern Time, less than two hours from now, that will mark the end of a crucial 72-hour window during which most earthquake survivors are rescued. After that, experts say hope fades, in this case quickly, where critical factors like cold weather and terrain, aftershocks and access, those are all ongoing concerns. Now, the epicenter of the earthquake was in a small province in southern Turkey that sits right on the Mediterranean coast. It's bordered by Syria. But the quake was felt more than 300 miles away from there, and it affected more than 13.5 million people. Because this is such a remote area, local and international rescue teams are having a hard time getting there. And survivors are telling reporters in Turkey that in the first critical 24 hours after that quake, no one was there to help. No government no rescue teams. People themselves, survivors, use their bare hands to dig through the rubble looking for their loved ones. Like in this video where a man sees the body of his wife but is unable to pull her out. He told a reporter that he knew she was gone. People in Turkey have taken to social media to vent their frustration, but instead of getting answers or assistance, they are getting punished. Turkish police said today that at least 18 people were detained and five of them arrested for sending provocative posts about Turkey's earthquake. Access to Twitter in Turkey has also been restricted. Turkish President Erdogan visited the affected areas today and admitted some shortcomings in the handling of the crisis, but also said it is not possible to be prepared for such a disaster. Whether it was possible or not, Erdogan certainly was not. At the time the earthquake hit, Turkey had less than $5 in the government's earthquake relief fund. $5. Fortunately, other countries have sent in rescue teams, which are now on the ground in both Turkey and in Syria. On the Turkish side, teams are forming human chains as they climb collapsed buildings looking for survivors, which is how this happened. An eight-year-old boy was found after more than 32 hours under the rubble. He was then passed from person to person over the debris until he landed in the arms of his mother. And yesterday, Syrian civil defense teams posted a video of the moment another child was rescued after being under the rubble for more than 40 hours. So these are the good stories. But as of tonight, more than 15,000 people have been killed, including at least three American citizens, and tens of thousands have been injured. More than 12,000 of those deaths are in Turkey. The rest are in Syria, which is, of course, a country still dealing with the scars of a brutal civil war. And for those who have managed to survive, they still very much need food, water, and shelter. You can visit NBCNews.com for information on how to help in this crisis. We will be right back. Most Americans simply want to live their lives in freedom and peace.
We are under attack in a left-wing culture war we didn't start and never wanted to fight. Every day we are told we must partake in their rituals, salute their flags, and worship their false idols. All while big government colludes with big tech to strip away the most American thing there is, your freedom of speech. That's not normal. It's crazy. And it's wrong. The dividing line in America is no longer between right or left. The choice is between normal or crazy. It sure is. That was Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders delivering the GOP response to the president's State of the Union address and offering us a terrifying glimpse into the Republican Party's case for governing. And she is not making this argument alone. Down in Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis has taken on the so-called left-wing culture war with unique zeal from the Don't Say Gay Bill and the Stop Woke Act, to banning restrictions mitigating the spread of COVID-19, to blocking Florida high schools from offering AP African-American studies, to barring diversity and inclusion programs at Florida colleges and universities, and basically forcing Florida schools into closing down their classroom libraries. Governor DeSantis is all in on the battle between normal and crazy, only it is unclear if he understands which side is actually normal and which side is actually crazy. What are normal people who are being called crazy supposed to do in these culture wars? What should crazy people who think they are normal be asked to do? I know just the person to ask. Joining me now is Kenji Yoshino, professor of constitutional law at NYU Law School and author of the newly released Say the Right Thing, How to Talk About Identity, Diversity and Justice. Professor, what a book to have released this week on the heels of the State of the Union and its responses yesterday. My question to you is, like, how do you even talk about diversity and inclusion and equity in a state like Florida where they literally don't want you to be having those conversations anywhere publicly? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, first of all, thank you so much for having me on. And, you know, I'll begin by saying that we're actually not trying to talk directly to Governor DeSantis. Exactly. It's almost like, you know, they're on one side of the room and, you know, I'm my co-author on the other side of the room. And we're both talking to the people who are in the middle in the mm-hmm. room who are undecided sort of people of goodwill who want to get these issues right, but are terrified of getting canceled for saying the wrong thing. Right. And, you know, for, say what you will about them, like the DeSantis's and the Sarah Huckabee Sanders's of the world have a value proposition, which is come to our side. You can say whatever you want. You know, the old status quo applies. And then if somebody's offended, that's their problem and they're crazy. Right. right? We're taking the problem off your plate. We're the ones who are right. They're wrong. Don't worry about it. Anymore. Exactly. Which is but you are proposing something that takes more work and is more nuanced. And how do you make that argument that it's yeah, worth having? I, I think it's it's worth having first because it's the right thing to do. And yeah. that's sort of bedrock, you know, that the people who are trying to stick up for these values are on the side of justice and inclusion and really the future, right? So those yeah. are all really good reasons. What worries us is the methodology that we're using because I think too often we're too quick to cancel culture, you know, to cancel people. So cancel culture has its place. If somebody yeah. does something egregious, that's just consequence culture, right? But I think what we're worried about is a person of goodwill who is so sort of frozen in fear about saying the wrong thing, as we all do from time to time, and hurting someone they care about or getting canceled themselves, such that they're actually much more kind of open and receptive to the DeSantis proposition. Do you feel like that's a certain, is there a profile for that kind of person? Is it generational? Is it racial? Is it economic? 
I think it is all of the above. Like, I think there are people in all of those demographics. I think this is like the bulk of the country. Like, if you look at, you know, so I'm like an Obama guy and just believing in the decency of Americans, right? So I have this unreconstructed view that America is a great country and that most people want to do the right thing. And what worries me a little bit about this cancel culture is that people of goodwill are actually not, you know, being given a choice between something constructive and something destructive, right? It's really just fear-based in terms of cancel culture. So what the book tries to do is to really move people away from cancel culture towards what we call coaching culture Mm -hmm. and say, like, we're going to give you tools. We're going to teach you, right, how to build up your own resilience, how to have more curiosity, how to avoid really unforced errors for conversational traps, how to, you know, uh, apologize authentically and how to disagree respectfully, right? Yeah, apologize. I mean, baked in this is a certain amount of empathy for our fellow Americans. And I do believe in the goodness of this country. I believe that we are an empathic citizenry. But there is a subsection, and maybe Ron DeSantis is included in it, that gaslights the hell out of everyone. I mean, for Sarah Huckabee Sanders to say normal versus crazy, she's right. It is about normal versus crazy. Only I would suggest to flip the tables, right? The rhetoric coming out of the right. I mean, what do you do about the gaslighting that is so it is so central to the Republican playbook at this point? Do you just not engage with people who are gaslighting you? I mean, what do you do when people are like, I don't want this culture war, and then proceed to, to wage a culture war? I really think you ignore them. And even when you have to talk to them, you have to realize that you're not really persuading them or talking to them. You're talking to the middle of the country that's listening in to the conversation you're having with them. Right. So again, you know, we have to be really kind of rock-ribbed in our commitments, but also sort of understand that when we're talking to that middle of the room, the middle of the country that we're trying to persuade to come over to our side— Every time, like, we choose cancel culture over coaching culture, we're driving more people into the warm embrace of Ron DeSantis. And that is a cautionary tale. Kenji Yoshino, author and professor of constitutional law at NYU, out with a great book that is so appropriate for these times. Thank you for joining me tonight. It's great to see you. It's always a joy. We'll be right back. Cast your mind back to the most frenzied aftermath of the 2020 election, to the fever swamp of conspiracy theories about voter fraud. Go to Arizona. In the spring and summer of 2021, while the cyber ninjas were spinning candy-colored Lazy Susans during their so-called audit of the votes cast in Maricopa County, a failed Republican statehouse candidate named Liz Harris marshaled an army to go canvassing door-to-door looking for voter fraud. Spoiler alert, just like the Maricopa County audit, the canvas didn't turn up anything. A year later, Liz Harris ran again for a seat in the Arizona State House, and this time she won. But then she announced that even though she won, she believed the 2022 election in Arizona was fraudulent and she issued a threat. I call on all state legislators to join me in demanding a new election. I will now be withholding my vote on any bills in this session without this new election in protest to what is clearly a potential fraudulent election. She signed it, Liz Harris, MBA, which is a totally normal thing for people with an MBA to do. This week, State Representative Liz Harris, MBA, appeared to make good on that threat. Liz Harris, MBA, joined all the Democrats to vote no single-handedly sandbagging a Republican bill to fund the government. Republicans hold a one-seat majority in the State House in Arizona, so Liz Harris, MBA, and her vote, they are crucial in the face of united Democratic opposition. 
As to why Liz Harris, MBA, voted no, all we have to go on is her pledge to hold the Arizona legislature hostage until they demand a redo of the 2022 election. She would not talk to reporters about it. Republicans were surprised to lose this vote, and they will try again in the next two weeks. So if we suddenly start hearing Arizona Republicans cry out about election fraud in the midterms, I guess we know why. If you thought that the 2022 midterms were a corrective to the election denialist madness of the 2020 elections, if you thought for a moment that the fever had broken, then I am afraid to have to tell you we are still very much living in the middle of an outbreak. That is the show for tonight. We will see you again tomorrow.